Welcome to Deacon's Pod. I'm Deacon Dennis. Say hello to my co-conspirators, Paulus Affiliate Deacons, Deacon Drew and Deacon Tom. Hello, this is Deacon Drew. Hello, this is Deacon Tom. Welcome back to Deacon's Pod. This is Drew. How are you guys? Good, Drew. Nice to see you today. All right, great. Going all right. Where are you, Dennis? If I may ask, I, I am currently and temporarily back in Connecticut, and I have to go back to Florida, unfortunately, for funeral of a good friend. Then I will be back for the summer in another week or so. So, Tom, where are you? Amazingly, I'm still in Florida here. I, why, I, why is that amazing? He's well, picking me I, up at the airport. You better be in Florida. <laughs> I preached last weekend, and after I got done, people have masks coming in. They said, oh, Deacon Tom, nice to see you. Where's your band? Where's your band? So when I got up to start my homily, I started by saying, a lot of people asking where I am because you haven't seen me, but I've been traveling. I'm, now I've got the reputation of being the invisible deacon at St. Joan of Arc. Now you see me, now you don't. A little prestidigitation. So. But now I am in Florida until the end of the month, and we'll start our summer tour to see a family in Maryland, New Hampshire, Connecticut, Rhode Island, West Virginia. Okay. I'm still in New Jersey. I'm always in New Jersey. But do you guys know that we have been doing this for a year? We just passed a year anniversary of Deacon's Pod. Ah, time for no, I've been so busy doing Deacon's Pod. <laughs> I haven't been counting. Which episode is this? I haven't done that yet. <laughs> I don't even know what the numbers are anymore, but I know that we've been doing it every two weeks for a year. Wow. For over a year now, frankly. Wow. I think we started last at the beginning of last summer. It's been quite a ride. We talked in our last episode about how comfortable we feel with this. And I, I'm suggesting that I should feel more comfortable than I actually do. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to say or uncomfortable. I mean, this is not as easy as we thought it was going to be, or as probably the listener thinks it is. But uh, yeah, and we're still talking to each other. So that that's the most surprising thing. You know? We've had some really, really wonderful guests. I want to say some of who our wonderful guests are, but I'm afraid if I do that, I'm going to leave out. Yeah, don't do that. Don't go there. So I would invite the listener who is listening tonight or any other time to go to our website and check us out. And you will see a lot of people that you might be impressed by who we spoke to over the last year with some very, I believe, interesting podcasts. They have some very interesting books. Some of them have written, some of them did not have books, but they had a lot of interesting things to talk about. So it's been quite a ride, thanks to well, you know. But just the numbers, if it's a year and we do a release every two weeks, how many episodes do you think we have out there? There's 25. Huh? 25? 26. 26, 52 weeks. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Okay. I suck at math. Okay. <laughs> oh, no. I didn't know there was going to be math involved. I didn't either. The num- um, leave it to the numbers guy. Like I said, that to right, string the trap. We, what we talk- <laughs> I'm just a liberal arts guy. Take it easy. Uh, really? I'm sorry. Two plus two. Yeah. Can we talk about opera? No, I'm kidding. Okay. Ah, no, I'm deprived. <laughs> no, I got no culture. Don't do that. Not the Irish. Yeah. So I, anyway, I'm just, uh, I'm pleased to say we've been on the air for a year with the help and support of the Paulist fathers and Paul Schnatzko has been instrumental in helping us out and David Dalt. Oh God. Who has to listen to all these and then make sense of all of them? It's, I know the poor man. He's got a high place in heaven. Yes, he does. He does. Maybe we should take up a collection. It takes a village to make us look coherent. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. <laughs> as, as, taking- as disorganized as youth might think this is, as you listen to it, 
there's a village putting this together to make it sound like something that ma- that makes some sense. So, Dennis, what are you doing up in Connecticut? Oh, Paul just sent us a note. Paul Snatchko, the boss, said it was it's a labor of love <laughs> making us coherent. <laughs> it has been it's been a labor of love for all of us i've learned a lot it's we're in deep water here with a lot of these guests it's a lot of very interesting people that are doing interesting things and they have really a lot of wisdom to share and everything yeah. and we're trying to we're trying to raise the subject of why we stay in the faith and for 26 weeks we've had people who are doing remarkable things and who are giving their heart and soul into this how to practice our faith, how to live the gospel, and how to share that joy that we're supposed to experience, you know, like and that you might have life and life to the fullest. Are we living the fullest possible life we can? Well, we're benefiting. We're benefiting. Yeah. That's the thing. People, it's not this is not a lone ranger do it yourself. I wouldn't get very far within any aspect of my life if I just said, Okay, what have I done that's just me? It's mom, it's dad, it's the schools I went to, the friends I had, and the church. The community is so important in every aspect of our lives, and we are really delusional as Americans. We really think we we did that. And it's, yeah, you and you yeah, and the individualism. Yeah, yeah, it's just a self-made just person, right? It's yeah. just not true. If you've ever seen anything I've ever made, if, if I was self-made, I'd be a part of the freak show, so you'd be able to tell across the street. Oh, God is good. Yes, he is. So, Dennis, why are you in Connecticut? I had a very nice day the other day. I I flew up because I had committed to doing a day of reflection for the catechists of the diocese, and it was on Ender's Island, which is a great place for a retreat, listeners. It's a little island that you can drive to from Connecticut. It's in Long Island Sound, and it's just beautiful. It's just a beautiful, lovely little place. Tom's been there many times. And uh, so I, I presume there's a bridge to the island. Yes, there is. You can drive there. Yes. Okay. You don't need you don't need the ferry. No kayaking. Uh, yeah. But, Although uh, bring your kayak. Yeah. You could come over from Long Island. It's only about five miles or something, I suppose. Might, maybe not even be that much. But anyway, so I was there and it was a beautiful day. So it was a sunny day. And of course, when I would give them breaks and send them out to do an exercise, give them a break and walk around and just the sea breeze and the bright sunshine. It was very cool. It was just, it wasn't hot or anything. It was probably high seventies, low eighties. Very nice. It was a lovely day. So I had a nice day, got to share with the catechists and we talked about contemplative prayer and apostolic reflection, which we talked about with Sister Liz on our podcast on the Sisters of Charity. One of the things they do is finding God in their ministry, apostolic reflection. So I was teaching the the catechist, the parish catechist, how to do that. And I uh, was talking about a lot about recollective practice, being in the presence of God throughout the day. So it's kind of like what you can do while you're busy. You don't have to be a monk to hit these things. So it was very uplifting. There were lovely people. I had a great time. Wonderful. So Tom, what's coming up next? What are we doing here today? Well, today we were fortunate to have with us someone that Dennis and I have worked with in the Department of Corrections, Bob Carini who is a counselor who was a, a counselor supervisor with addictive services there who had a 30-year career through your legacy of bringing hope and encouragement to the incarcerated women and i think with the men too oh yeah he worked in several institutions yeah yeah a lot of um, people got recovery got their lives back because of this guy yeah. very humble and, guy yeah and i met him when i came into the department of corrections in what, 2007 uh, Dennis, you go way back. You go back another 
decade with Bob, I believe. Yeah, 93. So he's got words of wisdom. He's got a man of experience, a man of huge amount of compassion for those suffering from addiction. And through the wonders of our technology and Dennis's invitation, Bob is going to join us today. Yeah. And it's a, and the reason for this, if you're saying, why are we doing this? It's because addiction also costs you spiritually as well as every other way. And it is an enormous problem that we are all in denial about. We just pretend it isn't there. And we don't, most of us don't even know the range of what there is to be addicted to. We think of drugs and alcohol and that's it. And it's, oh no, we haven't even begun to make the list. So this is a very important thing for disciples to realize because Jesus has called us to freedom. And our job is like Jesus to help people find freedom and not enslavement, which is what his addiction is to the idols, the substances in the process. The one statistic I will just throw out in the beginning is one in six people, and that's just alcohol and drugs. That's not all the other things Bob knows about and will talk about. One in six people are addicted to alcohol or drugs over the age of 12 in this country. That's the latest. It's a horrible number. So it's it's huge. Should... It's, how are we ignoring this? That's why we're having this podcast. Well, let, let, let's go talk to Bob then. And before we do, I just want to say, too, this ties in so much with the alcoholism and addiction, with the mental depression that goes along with this. And one of our guests in the past was Jessica Koblenz, who talked about depression. And it was a key tie-in with the topic that we're going to have today. So our guests can look back and check with Jessica a while ago. So without further ado, we have Bob Carini. Well, today we're happy to be here with my good friend and Tom's good friend from many happy years, Bob Carini. Bob is an addiction counselor. We were all together working in the state of Connecticut correctional system, and Bob was the guy who trained the chaplains so we could understand because most of the people we were dealing with, inmates, had an addiction or alcohol problem, and that was actually a new thing to have chaplains trained that we came up with because, again, going on a mission trip, you got to know the culture, the language. Like, what are you doing here? You're not home anymore. And we did that and it was extremely helpful to us in our ministry. So Bob's worked in a number of clinical settings besides prison, and he is a great proponent of the 12-step program and how to apply that and that everybody can apply it in some way or another, even if you don't have a drinking problem or a drug problem. And so anyway, Bob's a great man, and he's a good friend, and we welcome to the show. Bob, welcome. Yeah, welcome to see you. Nice to have you. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Thank you. What is an addiction? Let's just start with that. Let's clarify that for the listeners. What, what do we mean when we say someone has an addiction? And then I'm going to ask you about what are some examples, because there's many kinds of addictions besides drug and alcohol addictions. So what is an addiction, Bob? Okay. When I was working in the prison system, when I first started, if you said, what is an addiction? I would not have been able to answer you. But as time went by, I made it one of my things to really understand it. See, the old timers, they used to separate the mind and the body. But in reality, the brain is the mind. Okay. The mind is physical. It's changed by many things. It's changing constantly, nonstop. Okay. It's dynamic. It's aging. It's learning altruistic things. Numinous things are beautiful, altruistic things. But what those feelings are really, 
They're called neurotransmitters, which are the way the brain communicates, and they're related to reward. You've all heard of dopamine, serotonin, and so on, okay? When I was learning about how to present this to people, to me, there's a tremendous payoff in understanding and medicalizing the problem of what addiction is. In other words, it's brain chemistry who's, who's been hijacked in the service of the drug. The brain circuits, the primitive brain circuits, by pouring the drug, the nicotine, the, the alcohol, it doesn't matter if it goes in intravenously, transdermal, pills, smoke, injections. No matter what way it goes in, it's going to the mind and it's spiking. It's making the brain feel good. The reward is the high, no matter which drug you use. You talked about the medicalization model. And what, would you say a word or two about what kind of model they had before it and why the medicalization model is beneficial that we now have? So in the old days, they had what they called the moral. A lot of fundamentalist religions still use that. And you can find it in the Bible. And I run into it all the time. It's, it's a deviancy. It's a self-chosen thing. You're what they call degenerate. And it's like a self-chosen behavior that the person is just throwing themselves open to with total disregard. Okay, that's the moral model. All right, so it's like sin. It's like it you're choosing to do. But it's the not wrong the thing. sin, like missing the mark. They're not. It's more. Let's face it. Addiction is a disease of young people. You go ahead and try to get a forty-year-old to start smoking. Okay. You aren't right. going to do. It's a disease of young people, and people start this thing with no understanding. Right. That this is going to be that one decision that changes their life 25 years from now is in a divorce or depending on the drug. Right. We used to talk about in terms of get pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You're just a weakling. This is a character defect. And we've moved from that now to realizing, especially with the tremendous amount of brain research we've had because of the war and drug. They funded a lot. of. We know a lot more about the brain and how it works and this is what you're referencing, that we know that this is a medical thing and that once you ingest these substances, and I quote you from many years ago when you were teaching us, I've never forgotten this, is that you change your brain chemistry on a cellular level and it will never go back to normal again. That's what this stuff does. And so now we understand how, what the mechanism is in the brain with the dopamine and all these various things that go off all the time. It's just a natural thing, but we can become dependent by doing it over and over again and getting less of that reward. So we see this. So it went to a medical model, which is very helpful. And whatever the substance is, changes your brain chemistry. Now, let me ask you one other thing, just so everybody gets the picture of addiction. Could you say that's a substance abuse? People have heard that. Could you say a word or two about process addictions? Okay, process addictions. Yeah, not substance. Yeah, there's a lot of them now that they're very relatively new around technology. People who are addicted to video games, people who are addicted to pornography. A lot of young people, they're not getting the normal, what we would consider normal early sexualization in their lives in a nice, normal way. Gambling, a lot of technology things, shopping, acquisition. There's many of them. Right. So you're saying, just so we're clear, that the way you can know if you or someone else has a problem 
Let's take something that most people don't think of as, a, as an addiction. Let's take one of the process ones. Let's take shopping. And we know we had women inmates who were there because they couldn't leave QVC alone. They ended up with warehouses, stuff in their house until they were arrested that they couldn't pay for because they kept, they couldn't stop buying it. So if you're lying about it, if you're hiding it, that's an indicator that you have a problem. And what was the old line, Bob? Is this interfering with your life? Yeah, oh, they're negative. Like my father, my father died at 88. He drank a beer every day. I never saw him drunk, never saw anything happen. And my mother as well. Okay. That's healthy ability to enjoy a substance in the way it's intended to be enjoyed. Okay. However, in incarceration, over 70% of the women in the jail are either substance abusers or uh, they have substance use disorders. See, abusing, it's a midway. They, they don't even use it so much anymore, but abusing is like a college kid. And he's not addicted. His brain, he doesn't wake up and withdraw. If, you, if your brain is crying out for something, you're not choosing. Your brain is choosing. It's an enslavement. It's an attachment. I think the word actually means to be literally, addiction means to be nailed to be attached to something, like being nailed to a cross almost. So it, it is very much something is driving the bus and it's not you anymore. And the person you were, God, I had so many conversations with inmates about, they never in their wildest dreams, they came from nice middle-class families and then their wildest dreams, the stuff they've done, the stuff that they can't believe it was them. They just, they just can't. And there is all of this happening. So if, it, if it's taking over your life, so if you have a hobby, like that was interesting, I never even thought of that one. So if I have a hobby and I enjoy my hobby, but it's not, well, I'm spending my money on my hobby instead of paying the mortgage, that would be a sign that maybe I, I might be addicted to this as a process addiction, right? Or well, if I wasn't. The only way it really matters, because usually people don't get into recovery apart from some kind of a crisis. Something happens that breaks through They've acclimated themselves to this use. And don't forget that the denial system is subconscious and automatic. It's part of the substance use disorder. It's part of the disease. The nature is it's writing its own lies to diminish and deflect. No matter the level, it has right. to get to the point where, you know, it, just in that moment, the crisis helps the person break the pain offsets the machine, they've they, been running downhill. So we have addictions in our society and they are substance where you're taking something, the one we usually think of drinking alcohol or taking drugs. We have processes, things that can be very innocent in and of themselves, as can drugs are good when you're prescribed by your doctor and to help people. And, and let's, uh, let's back up a little, just one little bit. Um, they now consider eating disorders as substance disorders because not every food can treat uh -huh. mood alteration okay like in your book there a father ed but he had heart attacks he was saying he was reading the big book of aa and he says flour sugar biscuit right. fun stuff you know what that meant what does that mean he was eating the kind of foods that we know now refined carbohydrates fats type of thing he was he knew what his alcoholic foods were and right. he identify it from the big book. Right. So he's, he's, he's talking about Father Ed that we, we did in one of our podcasts. You can check that wonderful book about the 
with this priest who was very involved in the early days of Alcoholics Anonymous and who learned the 12 steps. And Bob is alluding to a thing in that book where Father Ed looking at 12 steps thinking, well, I don't drink. I don't have these problems, you know, what these guys are doing. And he realizes that he has an eating problem. And this is in the 40s or the 30s or something. This is way before anyone even heard the word. He figured this out. So again, it's not, and we'll talk about this in a bit about how the 12 steps can be helpful to a lot of people, and especially those of us who are saying, well, that's not me you're talking about. I don't have that problem. So that's the reference he's making there. So, and Dennis, uh, that came out on January 17th for our listeners who might want to go back with Don Eden Goldstein and Father oh, yeah, Brad. Yeah. So the podcast. It was early in January. Yeah, um, it was excellent great book. cross-reference. Yep. Yep. We, all right, so I want to get into some of the other stuff. So basically, we're talking about an addiction and just in the drug and alcohol area, I looked up a thing today, and this is a, an HHS report, Health and Human Services, from this past January 4th. And it basically says that of people 12 years of age and older, 12, think about that. This is just alcohol and drug addiction. This is not all the process stuff that we're talking about, just alcohol and drugs, which you normally think of as addiction, that they figure 46.3 million people in this country that meet the criteria in the DSM. The DSM is the manual a psychiatrist, psychologist would use to decide if, if you have this or if you have that. So they'll have, let's say, this disorder has nine things to look for. And as the doctor's talking, he'll look at you and he'll say, okay, that's one, that's two, that's three. And you have to hit a certain number. Like maybe, okay, you got to have seven out of nine or six out of nine or whatever. And then this doctor can say, yes, you have, this is your problem. Not one doesn't do it, two doesn't do it. So they, there's this whole criteria, but based on that, and that is what we go by in the world of medicine, they are talking about just drugs and alcohol in this country starting at age 12. And the majority of these are young people. The majority are 18 to 25 years old. That's 16.5% of the population, 16.5%. It's almost 20%. So let's say one in every six people that you know has alcohol or drug addiction, according to the feds. One in six, which means in your family there's someone, certainly in that little town you live in that you think, well, I live way out here. This, we, that doesn't happen here. One in six. Your church, one in six. And we all act like it's not happening. It's amazing. And that's just, that's just alcohol and drug. That's not the addiction to social media, which is just starting to be talked about. The food addiction that Bob mentioned. And of course, we're learning more and more as we go along. Point is, addiction is a serious problem. And that's the reason we ask our friend Bob, who has been in the trenches and the front lines dealing with this and learning as the scientists learn what exactly is happening, where is it happening, what causes it to happen, I think you get the idea what an addiction is. What I'd like to uh, ask Bob next is, Bob, what are some of the treatment modalities? What are some of the ways this gets addressed? If you were say, I've got a brother or someone, or I myself, someone listening, may have one of these medical conditions of addiction. Give us a couple, like off the top of your head. I'm going to ask you to spend some time on the 12 step, but just to let people know, there's a range of different ones. What, just a few of them. Well, first off, there's a lot of medicine involved nowadays. You can get a lot of different kinds of things that help with withdrawal 
Well, also, you have, we have many kinds of treatment. You have cognitive behavioral therapy, which is very popular. You have dialectic behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, and there's many other kinds. Okay, so what? just give us the, the first two, just because I want people to, be able to contrast that with the 12-step. So basically, in a nutshell, what is cognitive behavioral therapy? What, like, what would that look like? In general, what it does is it asks the person a lot of questions about themselves without no threatening, just asking them. Talk about, let's say it's smoking. Say, what's it given to you? And what, do you have any concerns about it? How do you really feel about it? It could be smoking for many years and you'll never get arrested until the spot appears on the x-ray film, which could be decades. There's always a sense of invulnerability until it happens. But they'll have their own feelings and, and they'll say, costing me a lot of money. At work, it's no longer acceptable for me to have to get up and leave my job and go outside when the non-smokers are getting mad. Okay, then the insurance company wants me to quit. My family hates it. So you let them, and, and by looking at just inside themselves, they'll say, yes, it, it helps me relax. It's really important to me. I am getting out of work. I have cigarettes. But on the other hand, like 80% of all the people who smoke are trying to quit every year. Okay, and about 5% make it. So what happens is people get into this when they're kids because they're trying to project a persona you know, they're searching for their way forward and they're looking to be sophisticated or there's a certain subsection of the young people that's looking for kind of the bad boy, bad girl. There's a real draw to that when you're young. So decisions have consequences. And like we talk about, so you're asked questions, you think about it, and what's supposed to happen is over time, the person becomes more and more clear about the negatives. And so that's what that does. And you have family therapy, which I'm all for. If you can get the people together in the family, the healing is so much better. There's a lot of things that come out. Stigma, eventually people realize they didn't see it coming when they started. See, that's why I was going to say about the medical model. It's tremendously therapeutic for the person to understand that they could not, they couldn't win this fight because the, their brain was subrationally too powerful and was getting around all their defenses, draw them back inside. It's a great relief to know that I'm not a bad person. If that's what you've been hearing, it's okay, this is my fault. I'm a bad person. I could stop. Why don't I want to stop? And you hear, no, you got a problem. You got yes. a broken arm here. This is not, I would imagine that's character a, defect. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. A big step forward. If they understand how intense it is, like they don't see, especially opiates, you're not going to die, but you wish you could die. So right. you're doing anything. You've got to keep putting that drug in to right. withdrawal from happening. Right. You're medicating a brain that's absolutely disturbed. Don't forget those numbers. Those yep. millions and millions of people. How many people are directly affected by each one of those millions? Right. Well, we saw that with the women in the prison. When you worked with the men and you worked with the women, we did both. And when mom goes to jail, there's a lot of collateral damage, a lot more than when dad goes to jail. It's just a fact. I've been wondering about the pandemic. My thought, and again, it's largely due to what you taught me, Bob. We go, went to lockdown. My thought was, wow, what's going to happen now when people can't get out and not just can't get their drug or their alcohol? My question was, what's going to happen when all the other ways that we just psychologically keep it together? Well, I'm going to go for a walk or I'm going to go to the club or I'm going to do this. 
blow off steam, go to the gym. And all that was taken away. And you got two scorpions in a bottle at home or whatever. I didn't know what was going to happen, but I know you were taking away the coping mechanisms of most of America. And then, of course, the drugs and the alcohol, too. Or how many people developed drinking problems because they were, that was their coping mechanism and they come out of the pandemic and now I'm an alcoholic. I'm just waiting to see what the fallout is. So what they do, they found a way. You ever try to come between somebody who's addicted? Recovery's inside work because uh, people will do almost anything. The liquor stores around where I live would just began delivering. Yeah. They began delivery service and there were cases, you could see cases of liquor and beer and wine put on people's front porch. No contact delivery. Okay. See, that's the American way. So maybe this this is it. There's a problem, we solve it. That's right. So listen, Bob, all right. So we got the idea that you have what people would normally think of as if you say, I'm going for counseling or treatment, the kind of talk therapy you just described. And there's many versions of that and stuff. And then there's the 12 steps, which I really wanted to engage you on. Why, what is it that you think well, how do the 12 steps stack up compared to all the scientific talk, latest, newer methods of intervention and treatment? How do they yeah. still like, hold up? Is that, or is it like, is this is, that's passe. We're, we've got better stuff now. Back in March of 2020, the USA Today newspaper, they published this Adriana Rodriguez and Jane O'Connell. They did this macro study of 12 steps compared to all the other types of of treatment. And it said, a new study now published by the medical journal Cochrane Database and so on found that the peer-led program not only helps people get sober, but also has higher rates of continuous sobriety compared with professional mental health therapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy. And it says it dispels misinformation in the popular press that it's not working or it's even being harmful to people. So we wanted to clarify the picture. Now, everything I'm saying here today, I'm just saying to raise awareness. My first thing to anybody, whether they have a loved one who's addicted or themselves, whatever, my first thing is go get professional help. That's my two cents. Okay, because a lot of times people are going to need to detox and people are becoming, they get neurotic. They're trying to handle, they're trying to control other people's loved ones' addictions. You know, okay, things. so just stop there a minute. So you're saying that the first step, sometimes it's so bad that you have to get people to a safe place where they can be medically supervised to come down off of whatever it is they're using. Yeah, so that's, that's, yeah. that's how serious this is. It's not even like you can go, I'll go see this guy, I'll go talk to someone. Mm-hmm. You need to be medically supervised because so, some people, yes, some people. So you need to check that box to be looked at and make sure you're safe. In my opinion, I think treatment is, I like not one or the other. I like treatment followed by the steps. I like that. But for many people, long-term aftercare is key for staying clean and sober. Many people get clean just with the 12 steps. It's true. But I say this, you're going in there. Sometimes people could use some of those medications. That's just one counselor's opinion. Yeah, well, I think that's common sense. People, there's no price for doing it the hard way. But, okay, so the 12 steps is still effective. Mm -hmm. And the other thing we should mention is a lot of the other interventions cost money. You have to have insurance that covers it or you have to pay it out of pocket. 
This is free. And it's on every street corner, basically, in the church basement. And anyone can go free of charge. And that's one of the other good things that other therapies don't have is there's no fee structure. This is voluntary. And we're going to talk about what it is. But the first thing is it's near you and it's free. If you, are, if you have a problem or a loved one has a problem, this is something, a place to start. Bob, tell people very briefly, because I want to get into the steps and stuff. What, what is the 12 steps? Where does it come from? What, how does it work? Just a little bit about that. Well, the 12 steps came out of a big revivalist through America and Europe. It was this guy, Buckman. He was trying to set up a hostel. And he, was, he had a plan for it. He wanted to use the money a certain way. And the religious leaders said, no. You can't have that money. We're going to do it our way because we're in charge. So he went over to England and he was there. He went to see this famous person talk, but he was busy. So he was at a place called Keswick. And this woman came out and she preached. There was only like 16 people. And he listened to her. And he said, when she talked about the cross of Christ, he realized that he was only nominally being a Christian. He wasn't being Christ-like. He realized he was the problem because he was holding a resentment. These people had the right to make that decision. So he says, I'm the one who needed to change. And he said, I have to let Christianity guide me fully with no reservations into forgiveness and so on. And when he did it, he had this spiritual awakening or born again from above experience, whatever you want to call it. He realized that by absolute total surrender, and seeking God's will, it's all about forgiveness. It's follow the love, follow the truth. And when he did, he was profoundly affected. And he started this movement. And they started having house meetings and that two-way prayer. You give God your prayers and your life, and you listen to God because he'll give you guidance. They believed in guidance. They were mystics. So they identified, because you're saying keywords are going to come up in the 12 steps. So they identified, there's an earlier group. It was a religious revival. They identified resentment, the need for a spiritual awakening, for this to really sink in and become part of your life, the power of having a group of people to support you. And then a, a member of this, wasn't it Ebby, was a member of this that meets Bill well, well, Yes, Ebby Thatcher. He was a Rhode Island industrialist, very wealthy. He went to see Carl Jung to be treated for his addiction. And Carl Jung treated him for a substantial amount of time. And on the way back to the United States, he picked up alcohol on the steamship. And he came back to Carl Jung. And Carl Jung said, I've never seen one person recover who's as badly gone as you are. The only thing I can suggest is an entire psychic change. And see, the only way I can say is go back, find some people who are religious, believe in God, live spiritually, go back and hang around with them. And he did. Okay. And he, what would happen at these Oxford groups, they were only about evangelism. They weren't about recovery. Right. Well, it wasn't no. about drinking. No, it wasn't it was about, about being a good Christian. It was being about surrendered to God 100%. Right. right. So anyway, but what was happening is alcoholics started going there because they realized once in a while, somebody was getting clean and sober. By their authentic sharing, the, the honesty, praying, meeting together every day, the sacred week. And so this happened and over and over. So what happened is it was drawing all kinds of people who didn't care about being good Christians. And there was like a schism forming. 
Okay. And so what happened is they called themselves the drunk squad and they were just there because they wanted to get well. And there was a tension there. So it finally, that's how AA came around. It was about recovery, finding spiritual freedom. That was their primary thing, not uh, evangelism. Right. Um, and there's still that schism today where people like will argue with the 12 steps, even though it's worked for millions because I don't buy this God thing. So they even do a thing where they say, well, it's the God as you understand it. We're not doing theology here. It can be anything, whatever you want to think God is. You just got to do it. And it's uh, to me, it's interesting that if I went to the cancer ward and said to anybody, because this is the resentment and the arrested development involved in these diseases, if I went to the cancer ward with a sheet of paper saying, here are the 12 steps. If you do this, your cancer will go away. They would knock me over to get that paper out of my hand, and they would do it. And they would not be arguing with you about, well, I'm not going to, I don't know how much I believe in God. I think I'll just stick with my cancer. It's just, but you still, so it's interesting that was that early on. What's the church's position, if the church has one, or what are the counselor's positions, I should say, vis-a-vis the church with this recovery treatment? We've set a wonderful foundation here of how deep the problem is and how there are different varying ways of attacking the problem. And, and then the fact that the 12 steps is still a valid way of recovery treatment to go into the problem. What about the spiritual aspects and dimensions of that? How important is it to recovery to have a spiritual dimension? Yeah. The spiritual dimension, the, the whole thing is about surrender. People can't believe something they don't believe. When you're a counselor too, you don't tell them what you believe. You ask them what they believe. And trust the process. In other words, I trust that God is inside of them. And even whatever's going on with them, on some level, they want to get well. Yeah, and there's 60,000 meetings, America. All right, let's talk about that. And they're everywhere online. I forget how many thousand narcotics anonymous. There are like 70 different programs. What I'm saying is anybody who's out there thinking about it, you can get an app on your phone that will show you all the nearest meetings, where they are, when they are, how far away they are. But oh, there's an app for that. And there's neat online meetings and there's right. online 12-step programs. So you can get online programs about how to do this. You can get online well, meetings and you can find out where the meetings near you are online. You can go on your computer now if you or someone you know or love who's struggling can find this fellowship that helps yeah. each other overcome this at your computer and find out that it's at St. Mary's Church at 7.30 on Tuesday night in the basement or whatever. And Bob, if someone were to do that and get that information that it's 7.30 on Tuesday night, et cetera, et cetera, down on Main Street, what do they have to do to join? Walk in. You have to have an honest desire to stop drinking. That's it. It's a wisdom tradition passed from one person to another. So in other words, when you're going to go there, try to find somebody who has a sponsor, somebody who's worked the steps, somebody who's serious. So listen. And when you hear, there's a certain quality and integrity and courage. When you hear that, go ask that person if they'd be willing to sponsor. So when you go in it, and you just walk in the door and sit down and listen, and you don't even have to talk. You can just sit and listen for a meeting or whatever and take it in or go to a couple of them or whatever. 
even what Bob is saying is if you have no religion, you're going to have to do some work. If you have no spirituality, let's put it that way. If you, if you just wave all that away as hoo-ha, you're going to have some work. And if you are a religious church-going person, you're going to have some work because it's not just the superficial, conventional, I love Jesus thing. You're going to have to do some digging to get to the real spirituality that's going to help you come out of your addiction. So it's the same process. I'm powerless. But what we're saying ourselves is whatever way we understand higher, the room of the spirit is wide open to every single person. Okay. And then trust the process. When I honestly look inside, he's already in there. I just didn't know it. And I wasn't paying attention. But when I really am paying attention, I'm really listening. And other people are sharing their experience, strength, and hope. Okay, together, see, it's the first thing it says, we're the sacred we, God, self, and others. The program is three-dimensional. The closer I get to God, the more healed I become, deeper my presence is, I get stronger, I'm more honest. And as that happens to me, my wife experiences a different husband. Yeah. And when you go to the meetings, the level of honesty and the number of people that will tell you a story like Bob, that I didn't believe this when I came in here, but my life, but my life is together. I'm happier. My family's happier. It's millions and millions of people. And you can verify it that way. I was just going to say though, the last five minutes of what Bob was telling us could be just talking about anybody who wants to get closer to God. It is not necessarily applicable to addiction recovery. This business about if you think you're religious, but you're not, if you're not realizing who God is in your life and who God is in your neighbor's life, then you're, you haven't gone deep enough into your own life. Right. right. You're still superficial. It's, I know we're talking about this tremendous issue of addiction and, and recovery, but it's a spiritual lesson in and of itself. What he Absolutely. Did. That's a very great point. I wanted to ask Bob just for a minute or two about that was where I was going to go next. We have these things and we're praying for the people that are struggling with this. And there's a lot of them, one in every six. We all know people, whether we know it or not, we know them who are dealing with this. But there is also, this is such a distillation of a wisdom tradition that came out of Christianity, basically, and is put in a step-by-step, no-nonsense form. And we already talked about Father Ed, who was a, a learned Jesuit priest with advanced degrees, who looked at this and diagnosed another, like a problem of his own, that it was not drinking, and by learning these 12 steps and working with these people. And so it is something that even if you don't have a substance problem, that you can apply to your own life to be a better Christian. I mean, you, these steps. Bob, could you say a little bit about that? Just as a general, I used to joke with the inmates, and when I would talk about the 12 steps, because they all had these problems, so you had, they were leaning. You preached on this. You, they were leaning forward. They were, you could drop a pin and hear it, because this is life and death, and they know it for them and their families. And I would say, I would make a joke and say, I do this, and I, they'd say, how do you know the steps? You don't have any of these problems. And it's, I'm a jerkaholic is what I used to tell him. I'm a sinner. This is all good stuff that will make you a better person if you apply it to your life. Bob was talking about the resentment thing. The number of resentments we're all holding against this person or that or what happened 30 years ago. Clear it out. So, Bob, say a few words about 
just at the 12 step as a spiritual program in general. The purpose of the divine therapy of the 12 steps is the healing of the roots of all our problems and to transform our attitudes and indeed the whole of our human nature into the mind and heart of Christ. And this is speaking to Christians in particular, but it's true of every, whatever you believe, it will bring you closer to it and it will open you up to it. This involved a transformation of our attitudes, faculties, and bodies so we could receive the maximum amount of transmission. It is to change us into the divine way of being a human being. And this is a much bigger and more comprehensive project. And it goes on. The persistent use of prayer and meditation opened the channel so that where had there been a trickle, there was now a river, which led to sure and safe guidance from God as we were better able to understand him. So those kind of things, to me, are key. And yes, here again, what the four things you do in your inventory, resentment, fear, dishonesty, and selfishness. If you see those four, you stop. It doesn't mean I'm a bad person. There's an issue I'm dealing with that needs a spiritual solution. Mm. So I, I bring that to God. I say, this is what's happening to me right now. So it's just not, it's just not I'm drinking or whatever. It's just the, all the things that are the buttons and the things that are swirling in us that make us do things we regret that hurt our relationships. They can all be helped with this approach of the 12 steps, which some people have said, scholars have said that this will go down in history as the unique American contribution to the history of spirituality in the world, the 12 steps. So. This is not, it's not just for alcoholics. What about the person who suffers living with this person? What kind of help, what kind of program is there for them? Well, there's, it's a different kind of powerlessness over this other person's addiction. But what you do is you work the same 12 steps. What do I do with my fear? What would God have me to? And I want to say, giving up, it's, it's a simple, that they say, simple, but giving up self-will is what this program's really after. Yeah, yeah. There is a program besides AA or whatever you can look up on the computer called Al-Anon, A-L-A-N-O-N. And that's for the kids, the wives, the husbands who live with someone who has one of these problems, whether it's narcotics or alcohol or whatever. And it teaches you how to survive, how to help that loved one and how to protect yourself and your family. And it's the same kind of fellowship structure. It's free. It's all over the place, so there is help. You're not alone there. I just want to ask Bob, because we ask all our guests this question. Do you have anything you would say to people who are you know, on the doorstep, who are not sure which way to go? Do I leave? Do I stay? Do I do this? Do I not do this? What would you say to them? And I would say, keep coming back. You never give up. You don't stop. They say, don't stop before the miracle appears. This can help you. I'd say, go give it a try. And they say, well, have you got to lose but your misery? We're a wisdom tradition. Yeah. Sing it on one to another. I would say this, just as a non-alcoholic uh, or addict, the best human beings I've met are in recovery because they've done this inner work. Forget the fact they're not using or whatever, they're not bouncing off the walls anymore, but just as someone you want to be with, someone who is caring, open, honest, like a good human being. I am always amazed at the number of people that I think are way above average. And then I find out, oh, they're in recovery. Oh, that's okay. So they've done this work we've been talking about. Well, I just want to thank my good friend, Bob Carini, for taking the time. 
and uh, giving us his wisdom. I just, we didn't do it justice because he, he knows so many things and there's, there's such a depth to this program. We are grateful for his time. And I was thinking when Bob said he'd do this, that this is really a program about knowing the truth. And I remember the words of Jesus, you will know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And that's what Bob Carini's been doing all his life is setting people free by teaching them to know the truth about themselves, free from a very real destructive thing. And I'm proud to have him as a friend and I thank him for being here and we hope to have him again. Thank, thank you very much. Thank Bob. you guys. Thank you so much again for the opportunity. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Take care. Special thanks to El Jefe Paul Snatchko and our editor, David Dalt. The Deacon's Pod is powered by the Paulus Fathers. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts and, of course, at our own website, www.deaconspod.com. That's D-E-A-C-O-N-S with an S, Deacon's, plural, pod, all one word, dot com. And, of course, we'd love to hear your comments at our email address, which is deaconspod, again, with an S, deacons, at paulist.org. That's P-A-U-L-I-S-T dot org. Love to hear from you. That's our offering. We thank you for being with us. On behalf of our colleagues at the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle, we wish you a future brighter than any past. Till next time.